This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. We're delighted to have Emily Nussbaum with us this evening. Emily, of course, is one of America's foremost TV critics. She began writing about TV in earnest uh, years ago in a uh, for uh, in a column called Reruns in the New York Times, uh, then worked at New York Magazine, and since 2011 has been on the staff at, at the New Yorker. Her pieces won a National Magazine Award in 2014 and the Pulitzer for Criticism in 2016. And in the time that Emily's been focused on TV, the media, medium itself has transformed immensely, not just the technology, but the subject matter, the genres, the production models, the participants, the audiences. Some days, Emily writes in the introduction to her new book, it seemed like my favorite medium had changed so much that it was barely recognizable. Now, Emily is known for writing about TV like the art that it is. And the very idea of TV as art, not simply entertainment or a, a bad-for-you indulgence of ad-infested mindless junk, uh, which is how much of TV was widely viewed back in the, in the 20th century, the very idea of TV as art has now become conventional wisdom. Emily's book, I Like to Watch, is a collection of about 30 of her pieces, mostly from The New Yorker, uh, plus a couple of new ones, that together reflect how her own thinking has changed as the medium has evolved. These are essays and profiles that not only celebrate television, but also guide us to new ways of looking at it. The articles that Emily picked for this collection weren't meant, as she says at the outset, to reflect her favorite shows over the years. They were picked because she thinks they've held up best as criticism and also most effectively make her argument about the uh, distinctiveness and contributions of, of TV. Much of her writing has explored the ways gender, race, and sexuality figure into television shows. And to read her collection is to be reminded of just how insightful she's been and how, as uh, one reviewer in, in, in Kirkus put it, She's proven to be, quote, a highly reliable source for evaluating this rapidly pro pro progressing medium. Now, Emily will be in conversation uh, with Alexander Petrie, Washington Post columnist with a great comic sense of humor, as uh, a comic sense, uh, as um, I'm sure many of you know. Uh, she writes the Compost blog, a mix of opinion and humor, and she's the author of, of a book of essays, A Field Guide to Awkward Silences, uh, that was published to uh, published four years ago. Uh, she's also done a bit of TV herself, appearing on Jeopardy, um, and, a, and a documentary about Benjamin Harrison. Not to mention her um, her occasional commentary. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming both Emily and, and Alexandra. Hello. <laughs> oh man, I'm just super excited to be here. I was a fan of Emily's before I was a person who'd gotten to meet her in person, which I actually was from before because we were on a cruise ship together. Fun we went fact. on a super nerdy cruise ship together, <laughs> just a couple last year. Yeah, but yeah. No, this year. This year. It feels like last year yes. because time in this era is like dilated to such a great extent. But yeah, no, but I've, I've been a fan since before that, because I feel like you and Roger Ebert are two people who are like, I just want to know what you thought about the thing that I just saw to an immense extent. Um, and he, he's no longer available, but fortunately you are. And uh, wow. so I guess I sort of want to start with like a broad TV question and then just be like, what do you think of all the television I've ever watched in my life? How, how should I feel about it? Um, so how does it feel to have won the cultural war about television? It feels good. <laughs> no, I mean, I actually start the book with this deliberately hyperbolic statement about having won the war over the question of whether television is something that can be taken seriously and all of that kind of thing. But I'm, uh, it's partially because the book itself is framed as a pugnacious kind of aggressive uh, argument in itself for separating television from 
the sort of age-old status anxiety and constant comparisons to books and movies. And this is the basic premise of it. But I have to say the problem, as, as was coming up in the introduction, is that TV has changed so much that I'm like, what exactly is the nature of it? Because the whole point of the book is to celebrate television as television and expand the range of the kinds of shows that get taken seriously. But even in the last three years, it's been bizarre. So, and I have to rely on, I was, I was going to say before we, um, as we were starting up on my way here, I knew that the one thing I had to do to prepare for this panel was to watch some of the terror because the entire time that I was hanging out with Alexandra on the cruise ship, she was lobbying me to watch the show, the terror. It's great. That's the thing is there's so much TV. Yes. So on the train on the way here, I watched this show, which is this very disturbing, (laughs) slow moving and powerful show about how Jared Harris is right about things to a certain extent, which yeah. is, but not Chernobyl. The other yeah, show, no, that, the other show, the other show said in the past where Jared Harris is right. And there's a horrible disaster. Yes. Um, no, I feel like my entire social life these days is just going to people and shaking them and saying, you've got to watch the terror. If you like gangrene, uh, if you if you don't like gangrene, there's very little gangrene. And uh, if you do like gangrene, there's some gangrene. And But it's also sort of like becoming this televangelist kind of, an evangelist for television, a term I've just coined now, and I hope catches on. Um, it's weird to be like, I think that you will like this because... How do you determine if someone's yeah. going to like a everyone piece of is television? now a Netflix algorithm? Yeah, it's like, do you like cerebral romantic comedies? Yeah, do you like shows with a chain of command women from clear? the northeast? Like, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. She was claiming that the terror is a chain of command show. Yeah, and that that's how you'd recommend it. And I was like, is that why people are watching yeah. it? No, because because my husband like he's like you got to watch Star Trek because Picard raised me. He was my true dad, and I'm like absolutely. And I was like, well, from from this it will logically follow that you'll love the terror because it's got the chain of command and people on a boat. And he's like, it's a supernatural horror set in like an Arctic waste where there's on-screen gore. And I'm like, yes, but it has a chain of commands, Steve. <laughs> so fortunately, I am not the algorithm in Netflix that's telling people what to watch. Uh, I actually do do that all the time when people ask me for recommendations because there is this level which people have genuinely different tastes and I don't want to suggest that everybody watch the thing that I love. I mean, I, you know, I do. I want to bully people <laughs> into watching the things I love so that they will continue to survive. But, um, but because there's so much television, I mean, there's that whole peak TV thing, but it actually really is this humid environment where it just continually expands to the point that it's a little frightening. And on the other hand, it lets me off the hook because I can't watch everything. Yeah. Um, but I do, I try to say to people, you know, what shows do you watch? And then come up with a kind of Venn diagram of their shows that takes them to a new show that I want to survive. But it'd be great if I actually, um, if I actually did it in a, um, in a screwed up, uh, in a, in a broken way where no matter what they said, <laughs> you would just be like, no, but I had thought about it and I was like, you gotta huh. watch Jane the Virgin. I yeah, exactly. I was like, you like Game of Thrones and like, I'm trying to think of some other, yeah, you just, like Game of Thrones and America's Most Wanted. Right. I think you'd like Jane the Virgin. <laughs> like that. But I should always say it as though it's a very knowing, personalized <laughs> recommendation. And then I could save, you know, I could have saved Terriers. Like if I oh, just, man, yeah. I watch Terriers and I have to say, I, why, why did you want to save yeah. it? I would, really? Did you not like Terriers? I, I really, cause I read Hank Stuber's review and he's like, you gotta watch Terriers. It's mm. transformative television. And so I went down to my parents' basement and I turned on the cable and I watched Terriers and I, it just, it didn't do it, it for didn't you. It didn't do it for me. Well, you know, other people felt that way. <laughs> Which is why Terriers is not on television to this very day. But, but I really made an effort, and I, I guess I liked the ending episode. And it was sort of, here's some ambiguous people doing a good job, but Terriers also failing. Terriers was this noirish show that was notorious for having uh, failed, not just because it had a small audience, but because it had a name that had absolutely no relationship to what the show was. And so oh, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was part of this, it's a particular Netflix category where shows whose names confuse people um so they they really should have like a strip you yeah. can have a whole strip of them they should have a thing where it tells you a name what the real real name of the show should be because i feel like crazy ex-girlfriend could also sort of fall into that category although they kind it's of they both occupy it exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so frustrating they they came up with a great name for the show they had an entire song at the beginning of crazy ex-girlfriend that explained the irony but that's not how people approach titles of things and it was literally the lowest rated show it was unbelievable, but an amazing show. And you know something? They got three seasons, so I just cannot complain. Right? Yeah, no. 
Was it three seasons or four seasons? Uh, four, four seasons, seasons. Yeah. They got four seasons. I mean, there's a certain point at which I do feel inured to stuff getting killed. Although I did just hear that Tuca and Birdie did not get a second season. And I'm... This is my fault for not watching the first season yet. I keep meaning to, and then I haven't. It's still there. Yeah, I know. But the algorithm didn't get my feedback yeah. early enough, and now it's... You'd think I would get over it when stuff is canceled, but... I yeah. was disappointed. But anyway, especially if so. it still has something to say. Well, that's the problem, is that it was a good, weird, strange, particular, extremely idiosyncratic show that I knew would get a small audience, but you could feel at the end of the season how interesting the second season would be. And that's not true on a lot of shows. That wasn't true on Big Little Lies. <laughs> um, I mean, I loved the first season of Big Little Lies. Um, but it was not clear why there should be a second season. Yeah, I started watching the second season because I finally finished the first one. And the second season just seems to be people saying out loud what they think of people, which is not inherently dramatic. Uh, <laughs> I just know a lot of reality like... shows are actually based on that premise. No, but they script those. They, yeah, they really yeah. work hard at that, I think. Um, I don't know. Admittedly, I, I should preface this by being like, I should not be on this panel at all because my television taste, like the thing that I watched most religiously growing up was America's Most Wanted, which I watched every Saturday. That's at, great. <laughs> that's not a thing to apologize for. But I feel like it doesn't have a plot. You were serving justice. Yes. <laughs> it, I was serving justice and I was also making it impossible for anyone else at college to use the TV room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because... Yeah, what did you watch growing up? I, I watched America's uh, Most Wanted, and I watched HBO's gritty prison drama, Oz. Um, which How old were you? I, high school. <laughs> like, I sort of, you, I watched it on YouTube. I sort of semi-bootlegged it, and then I had Netflix mail me the physical DVDs. Wait, on YouTube, like, like excerpts of Oz? <laughs> yeah, I watched, like, they had, like, part one of like, ten, part two of ten, part three of ten, yeah. and I slowly watched my way through it. And that is the most devoted kind of TV watching there is. There are certain shows, like, I, I was a huge fan of Once and Again, which was this show that is, yeah, it, it was, a, and it's so frustrating to me that I think the first season is available, but the other seasons are not, and one of my favorite episodes of television is from that show, and it's called The Gay Straight Alliance, and I have to recommend it to people through YouTube, where it's out in exactly that way it's like the first 10 minutes of the gay straight alliance the second 10 minutes but um but yeah i actually think that people should get some sort of extra points for fanhoods if they watch in ways that are um that require a tremendous amount of difficulty like the high, anybody who watches anything on netflix doesn't get any points because it's so easy to watch things but yeah there's no uh, barrier to entry whereas you had to physically turn a dial and also like yes. insert uh, tape into a VCR yeah. with multiple dials. I have this whole description at the beginning of the book, and it's so weird because it really does seem like this goofy, archaic, heartwarming, nostalgic description. Like, And I, I sometimes have read aloud this opening passage to it, um, and the thing that always gets a laugh is the part where I just describe, you know, and then there would be commercials, and people would go to the bathroom during the commercials, and then you would yell, it's starting again! <laughs> and then you'd have to run back. And it's like this now completely lost to history social interaction that was just part of daily life. But um, but yeah, I, I remember actually, I, I was such a prig that when um, remote controls were invented, I was extremely disapproving of them. I was like, <laughs> people should do the labor of changing the channel. <laughs> like, I just felt very strongly about this. I've clearly gotten over it. Yeah, no, the traditional method of yes. time honored from our ancestors where you physically <laughs> exactly. make the channel turn. Like it was a turn. pioneer task. Like, people are not going to get exercise anymore. Yeah, no, you won't get the clarity of the signal that yeah. you would experience by really tuning it in the vinyl Although, way. I, I also talk about there, there's, there's, I often find, I mean, one of the, one of the big themes in the book, and I think this comes through even in pieces that are not about this, is how much tele television is a technology and the changes in TV cannot be separated from the way it's distributed, the way you watch it, and that when TV became an ownable text that you could pause and rewind and share with people. It could just do a bunch of different things. But when I was trying to recall all of these ways in which this happened, all I could remember was how deeply annoying it was when VCRs existed, but before they got sophisticated. And in order to record something in advance, you had to turn three dials for, for like the, the date the hour and the minute on the thing that were like little, I don't know if anybody remembers this. I mean, maybe this is just my VCR, but it was just like this, but it, it honestly was the most agitating, but powerful thing because you had to really know that the show was going to be on Tuesday at nine o'clock. And now at this point, you know, three years later, you can watch an entire season of a show 
you know, by blinking. And so yeah. I, I do think that changes people's relationship with it as an audience. You know, I think my level of expectation for how much difficulty I'm willing to go through in order to watch something mm -hmm. is very different. Because before I'm like, I'll order a Region 2 DVD of it in the mail and it will come. And I will, and now I'm like, oh, it's not on Netflix. I guess I'll never see it. You're my dream viewer. You really were. Like, I, I did some, like, I, 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 I talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer a lot in the book. And the, at one point when, when yeah, Buffy fans. Um, when when you're shot. <laughs> yeah, go on about Buffy. Um, no, what if the whole thing was just about Buffy? Yeah. Um, but um, yes. when Earshot, which Earshot was this episode with the school shooting that came out around Columbine, and so it was pulled off the air. But I wanted to see it anyway, and so it was aired in Canada. So I got onto the then rudimentary internet and did find a person who sent me bootleg tape of it. So I actually have somewhere like a VCR tape that has all these Canadian commercials on it. <laughs> uh, earshot. But there, Tim but, Hortons. But it was that, that, that thing where you had to uh, seek out other viewers online really changed the conversation about TV because you could find the other fanatics. Yeah, no, because... Uh, speaking of which, Buffy. Let's talk. Why, why was Buffy so okay. great? So, <laughs> why was? Did you watch Buffy? I did, although yeah. not as religiously, I think, yeah. as I, I mean, should have. It was. What was that? <laughs> like, no, I have a, a, a lot thing? of TV-related guilt. I'm yeah. just like, listen. I, know, I haven't God. finished watching Fleabag season <laughs> one. I haven't got to the sexy priest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ill-prepared for this, this panel. Is itself a Catholic attitude. <laughs> no, it's it's um no uh yeah no the season two of Fleabag is excellent. No uh it, um Buffy was. I think this is true with a lot of television critics where they have an origin show, like a supervillain has an origin story. And for me, it was Buffy. And I tell the story of how I was in graduate school um, planning to be a Victorianist. And I turned on Buffy and I watched this episode from the first season called The Pack, which is not usually on people's top 10 list of episodes. But I had this transformative experience with watching the show where I was like, what is this? And I literally called a friend during a commercial because I knew he was watching it too. And I was like, what is this show? Like the principal was just eaten by kids that think they're hyenas. Like I was very, and, and it seemed like this very breakthrough mix of tones. And I became, um, I didn't become a TV critic. I became a Buffy super fan who was online all the time talking about it. And I talk about this at the beginning of the book, but I didn't get into television criticism for a couple of years after that. Um, but I was a very huge fan of The Sopranos as well, but I was frustrated by the difference between the way they were regarded critically. Not that they both didn't get good reviews, but The Sopranos was treated as great, not because it was a great TV show, but because it transcended television and it could be compared to movies and books. And Buffy was such a TV TV show. It was about a teenage girl instead of a middle-aged man. And I talk about this as this kind of formative argument that I had, but I really did become like an evangelist for Buffy. And I was a crazy online Buffy fan. I was, I was looking at like the live streams, which at the time was this thing where before the episode was on, you could actually, somebody would uh, write down all of the dialogue and then it would go online. And then there were, it was the beginning of websites like television without pity. And there was the bronze where the writers from Buffy would come. And to me, a lot of my formative influences as, you know, now I'm writing for a fancy magazine, but like, I feel like the, the inspirations for me were a lot of online conversation about TV, which was really about argument and theatricality and a kind of gonzo disputes over minute points, <laughs> you know, entire threads devoted to haters, you know, all that kind of thing. So no, I feel like being part of a fandom for something is like a good way of becoming a better critic of it almost in terms of you ardently want things to happen in ways that you have to justify in the text. What suggests that like maybe, uh, you know, Detective Chris Maloney, whose name I'm Stabler and like Benson, right. like, should they be together? Should they never be together? They are good friends. And like having to go through and be like, textually, here's the reasons that I'm sourcing <laughs> this out. Um, or like, or that can be a totally poisonous kind of fanhood. Cause I do think that the kind of fan fandom, which is a deep part of fandom online that literally sees the show only as the relationship between two <laughs> characters and gets infuriated at when anything isn't about their one true love can be very burdensome. But, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you, because there are people who I feel like watch shows in these highly specific ways. But yes, I do yeah. think, I mean, in one way, it's good preparation to be a critic. In another way, I'm glad I'm not still an insane Buffy superfan because it's a distorting mindset as well. No, because also you, then you become the guy who's like, well, 
actually that robot does fix this and I know because in scene five like this is happening it's like no actually that was bad storytelling you don't need to be like in defending the like, robot in a, scene five yeah there's a on, the online term retroactive retcon for retroactive continuity where somebody comes up with a reason why the bad writing actually makes sense but sometimes but, but, but the thing is sometimes that can be like that's to me one of the wonderful things about TV versus other art forms is that it takes place over time and is kind of made in front of your eyes and so Sometimes people do make changes late in a show that suddenly reflect back and make the show make sense. I mean, it's kind of improvised in a way that other kinds of narrative storytelling often aren't. And to me, that's what's powerful about it. Yeah. No, and I think sort of going on the topic of sort of guilty pleasures, which is one that you touch on in a lot of different senses, because there's the idea that like shows about Buffy uh, that are sort of TV first shows are kind of guilty pleasures in ways that like the Sopranos. Or that people are taught to refer to them that way. Like one of the things I say is that part of the reason I put the book together was I had a colleague who I said, what are you watching? And she was like, oh, you know, just guilty pleasures like Jane the Virgin. And I went into this crazy... Manifesto. No, that show is brilliant. It's really beautifully written. It's very thoughtful. It's visually beautiful. And, you know, I never saw her again. (laughs) She's watching Um, Jane the Virgin. She had to catch up. She's off watching Jane the Virgin. But it was, I mean, that's a certain thing where that's not at all. I mean, that's just a great show that is marked in ways that cause people who love it to know that they have to defensively refer to it as a guilty pleasure. But it's a great show. It's because it's feminine, it's warm, it's colorful, it's funny, it has a stylized formulaic quality that's native to certain kinds of TV. You know, it's part of these generic categories that people learn to put down. So that's that's one kind of guilty pleasure. And there's another kind of guilty pleasure that I do feel is, you know, it's genuinely like a fun, junky show that people feel is in some ways like harmful or bad, but they also enjoy. And it's about like that complicated mixed feeling that you have about something that has a titillating pleasure to it. Like sort of like Bachelorette almost. Yeah. Uh, I think that's true of some reality TV. Definitely. Yeah. And cause going into like sex in the city. Cause I know yeah. that's, that's one that I'm like, I can, that in SVU where it's like, I will watch those like candy, but I'm like in the back of my brain, I'm like, really, this is what I'm watching to relax is like, Oh, a woman <laughs> can have a fight. Yeah. No, I, I want to have I, a fight. I, I, th- I think sex in the city is a great show. Yeah. Like, wait, but do you think it's more of a candy show? Well, I, I just, I watched it like Candy, and admittedly, that's, I watched it like on, when it was re-airing on the reruns, so there wasn't the sex in it. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. Like which I think is why. Yeah. No. It's my, it's my thing. Like, I, like, it's so funny. I've written about Sex and the City a bunch, of, but I once wrote this piece when, I think when it ended and it was airing in reruns, and it was about how fascinating it is to me that those Bowdlerized reruns genuinely changed the show. Like, even though they only cut out, like, you know, five or six minutes. The five or six minutes are all of Samantha screwing around, like, which I, I, I suddenly was like, what language can I use in a bookstore? Yeah. <laughs> like, I have this thing. Yeah. And copulating wildly. But, but uh, <laughs> a certain amount of Congress was <laughs> trimmed. Um, but uh, no, uh, and Miranda's character is a totally different character in the edited ones because Miranda curses all the time and she talks really dirty and she actually has a lot of sex on the show. She's very cynical and she's a great character. When you watch the reruns, both she and Samantha's barely a character. Samantha's yeah. like Samantha's like Kramer on Seinfeld. And yeah. like, no, Jenny's like she stopping by for yeah. like some condoms and then she leaves. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like a. I, 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 you know, I have this whole thing about Sex and the City where I feel like that was a really powerful and important show that was very art artistically made. But I have another piece about SVU, and I do think SVU is interesting in a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. And I, like you, I've watched, I think, every SVU. No, because I feel like there's this wonderful piece by Carmen Maria Machado uh, where she goes through all of the SVU episodes and finds this sort of, like, almost, like, what's the real thread it's like fan fiction but it also almost transcends it i don't know it's really beautifully written and i don't know how to describe it exactly but it's like there's something in this where it's like springtime i I, i'm really at a loss for words but genuinely read it um what is what is she because one of the things that that i say in that essay is that i feel like that show uh, aside from the junkiness of the show being part of the power of the show. Like it makes horrible things watchable yeah. because it has it's like, it's these the cattle formula. prod episode. Of course. Right. Yeah. So you watch it over and over and over again with these predictable elements of it. And, you know, when there's a famous person, you know, they committed the crime and like things like that. <laughs> but, um, but that it's a fantasy about a, an amazing criminal justice system where there's this 
almost goddess-like woman who actually believes you and helps you and seeks justice. And like, that's the fantasy that undergirds the show. But, but there's all sorts of other things about it also. Like, why do people send their kids to that college? Yeah. <laughs> no. Right? I mean, I'm not the only one who's said this, but what is it? Hudson University? Yeah, you would never send a kid to Hudson because they're the complicit. Level, <laughs> the level of sex crimes at that college. Yeah. Murders, corruption. Like, it's amazing. I'm surprised. Yeah. Maybe they put it in the catalog. Like, maybe yeah. that's part of the allure. Like, want to live dangerously? Don't take a gap year. Yeah, just <laughs> come straight to Hudson. To Hudson. Yeah. Yeah. What does Carmen Machado say about the oh, show? Because it's sort of going through where it's like all the sort of the absurdity and the heightenedness of the like the individual episodes where it's like there are like six murderers and all of them become yeah. dragonflies. I mean, no, and- it, it's really, it, I, I'm, you know, it's funny because people think of the Dick Wolf shows and, and Law and Order as having all the same thing every time. But actually they do weird, ex- because they so go on for so long, the writers end up doing weird experimental episodes that are based on you knowing the premises of it. And there's a, a specific SVU that I'm fascinated by and I've always wanted to write about where it starts with something that seems like a very ex exploitative sort of lascivious titillating kind of plot that makes you very uncomfortable that's about this um, show-offy girl who clearly has a personality disorder who might be lying and then somehow it loops it in to an extremely serious story about immigrants and rape like a lot of times they 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 draw connections between different kinds of narratives about sexual violence and they make you see the contrast between them or they use one to point you to the other and that's how they use red herrings in the show. I mean, I think it can be very smart and there are parts of it that I actually don't like at all. Like, there are parts of it that I do think are crude or harmful but I I do think that the storytelling of it and the way that legal procedurals work in general, like network legal procedurals work within the rules of how you tell those stories in order to deliver interesting things is really fascinating and kind of underexplored. Um, no, it's fascinating because it, it's simultaneously like so consumable and so like fraught. And I feel like in recent seasons, they've started having a thing where like there's a plot outside of each episode where they want us to like know in a serialized way what's going on with Detective Benson. And I'm like, I don't like that. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I yeah, don't. I'm like, if you're an episodic legal procedural Stick to your yeah no because suddenly <laughs> stick like, to the rules because because part of the satisfaction of such an upsetting show is that the story ends after the episode yeah like I was this is such a specific conversation but SVU but it's true like what really bothered me is they had one plot where Benson was kidnapped by this terrible guy and it went on for episode after episode and I'm like the entire point is that at the end like the thing is solved or sometimes it's sometimes there's a terrible injustice and it never gets resolved, but you can move on to the next story. And to think about the main character being in danger was really painful. And to me took away from like what the show does well and what makes it different than other shows. I mean, there's a lot of shows on TV about sexual violence that use very different aesthetics to do it. And I feel like it was a sort of serialized storytelling envy on that show where it was like, well, we're a network show that has episodic stories but all of these cable shows that have, you know, really deep, gritty, cinematic, you know, it should be more like that. But I don't think that works. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like it's peculiar excellence is doing the first thing well. And so suddenly, like, in, instead of making it more impactful when they started doing a thing that yeah. other shows would do, where it actually made it really unsettling. Actually, the personal lives of the people on the Dick Wolf shows are incredibly fascinating. Like, oh, un- the, unlike- the end of that one where she's like, by the way, is, by the did way, you fire me you because firing- I'm a lesbian? <laughs> we both knew exactly yeah. who <laughs> It's like the craziest, but you know something? I rewatched all of that show to try to figure out whether there were hints that she was gay. Like, I there literally hints? was like, there was like, the one time they handled a case about gay marriage and she had a facial expression. I don't know. Like, it's like, <laughs> like very granular. But, but one of the things in, in like what I always call like a famous Ray's original Law and Order, like, is is that you never <laughs> you never got to learn a lot about their personal lives. So if you watched ten episodes, you would they would be ciphers. But if you watched a hundred episodes, you would know a lot, like because it would they would just give you these little tiny bits. I mean, it's a true workplace show because it was like, but you, then you'd find things out, like uh, the what's his name? Um, I'm sorry, the uh, I'm blanking on everybody's name. You know, Ice T. No, the main. No, the main. The main. The main lawyer who is the. Uh, you know. 
what Sam Waterston. Sam Waterston. Yeah. yeah. I was actually trying to think of a way to describe oh, Sam Waterston. What's his like, character name? Not, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, McCoy, McCoy. Jack McCoy. Yes. Like McCoy had had a few affairs over the years, but they only came out in like one sentence statements. Like somebody would be like, oh yeah, he used to sleep with her. But there would be like one time and then you'd be like, what, what is this connected to the plot? And then you just had to, yeah, it was almost like you were a person who worked in their office that was getting a little bit of gossip. So. Yeah. No, cause there's no one more famous than like people, your colleagues like talk about a single time. You're like, yes. oh my God. Yes. Now I, now I found out this thing. So Dave's neighbor did the thing. Yeah. And. It was fun when that when that main show ended. I got to write a little piece for New York Magazine about it, and most of it is about how it's about you know because I I felt like I didn't want to write a piece that was about how grand and important. I mean, the show is important, but what's interesting about the show is these weird repetitive things like that everybody keeps doing things when they're when they're interrogating them. They're like, "I'm sorry, I'm chopping up some carrots. I can't stop. I, I need to keep going." As I'm talking about my neighbor being murdered, and you know, people talk about these things, but when you watch the show, it is this, you have this real like Hamish satisfaction of seeing these odd cliches like cliches no, are comforting it's very soothing yeah like John Mulaney has this whole thing where it's like he loves how Ice-T manages to be shocked every episode it's true. by like the thing he's devoted his life to he's I, like you mean to tell me she was murdered yeah. after being assaulted <laughs> and he's You're like genuinely surprised and it's like yes this is a true he's bit this never, is exactly he's never hardened even though it's iced tea like yeah, yeah but um, a, a friend uh, like a friend of mine at, at, at New York Magazine called the, those kinds of shows laundry folders which uh, like there's a certain kind of show that you can fold laundry to or and 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 historically they were also shows that were not super visual so you could just absorb the dialogue and kind of know what's going on and that is a particular kind of TV that serves a purpose and some of that's gone away Way in you know in ways that are good sometimes like there are shows that can be silent and totally visual that didn't used to be true on TV at all but there is a place for the laundry folder yeah do you worry about sort of TVs moving into like big long movies and everything's like nine hundred years yeah. long and no uh, actually things are shorter now like now it's like ten episodes and because it used to be you know there were three networks and you had to produce a show that was twenty three episodes it's brutal for TV creators and it limits the kinds of stories you can tell. So as far as I'm concerned, the more variety, the better, because then you get three episode shows, 10 episode shows, you get, you know, I, I, I mean, I was excited when there, there's more web series that have different lengths and when drama and comedy started blending so much that the Emmys had to change their award system because one year Orange is the New Black was like best drama and the next year was like best comedy like they literally were like let's just change it to half hour an hour that's literally what they had to do so to me to me, the variety of of ways in which TV is produced, like it's all to the better because it, it allows for people to do original things. Like I was thrilled at, I don't know if you guys watch High Maintenance, but when High Maintenance was, was the one show that when I watch it online, I was like, this is great because it was on Vimeo and I was always looking for good web series, but there are not a lot of good web series online. Like I would get recommendations and I would watch things and I'd be like, it's good, but it's not great. And I don't want to... You know, you can't say that much about it. It's sort of like an audition or something. Um, but uh, high maintenance on Vimeo was so wonderful, and it really completely blew my mind that you could have like a 12-minute episode that was largely silent and had this kind of moody uses of montage and a different kind of editing. And now there are many more shows that are like this, but I feel like every time somebody breaks the rules for what you can do on TV, like go slow, go fast, like that's good. So I don't I don't worry too much about that, except for the inability to keep up with yeah. the amount of shows. No, do you think we're in a bubble or? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of years ago, uh, John Landgraf, who's the head of FX, said this thing where he was like peak TV, and I think it was in, I think it was in 2011 or 2012, <laughs> and he was like his basic argument was there's this he had all these um, charts at, at at the Television Critics Association and he was like it's exponentially increasing the industry can't bear up under this amount of production people don't have enough hours to watch we don't have enough talent so it's a bubble and it will burst again this was in 2011 or 12 I think so <laughs> that obviously hasn't happened um, but you know I'm not I don't work in the industry so like as far as I'm I'm concerned, I just want to know whether the show is good. And sometimes horribly broken systems can produce very good art. <laughs> so I'm a particular connoisseur of 
terrible networks with bad economic models that nonetheless managed to produce a good show. And sometimes these are big networks. Like the example I always use is when NBC was doing terribly, that's the reason 30 Rock existed for more seasons than it ever would have. Had it been on a successful network, they would have just canceled it. It had low ratings, but they didn't have stuff to replace it with. And it was critically acclaimed, and so it was allowed to survive. So I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of economically bad things that nonetheless <laughs> lead to shows that I love because sometimes that's the way that it works. You know, and as you were saying, like constraints lead to creativity. Actually, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Because yeah. I mean, George Lucas with the prequels, he was like, I can do anything I want to, and in the original, he's like, I have to make this out of scotch tape. And I think there is a quality difference. I knew you were going to find a way. I gotta shoehorn some Star Wars in there. Yeah. But I think we're about to open up to questions. If people have those, they should start congregating towards the mics. And I guess I want to just ask one uh, further question while people start mic grading. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I puns, they, they infest my entire worldview, um, which is sort of the question of like good things coming out of gross things, which I think yeah. as a critic, you have to wrestle with a lot. It's sort of like guilty pleasure. And what is the other meaning of that in terms of like morally, what can we consume? And like, yeah. does the creator die? And this is like, here's an eight hour question that we will need to discuss at length. And there is no <laughs> simple answer to, or maybe there is, in which case, great, great news. Um, <laughs> are, you are you talking about that? Cause I wrote, uh, yeah, cause I you wrote this, a whole, I have this, I have this essay. I mean, it has, I have some new essays in the book and I have one essay that is literally a symptom of the fact that my book, um, my book leave was in the fall of 2017, literally like a week into the book leave, the, the Harvey Weinstein piece came out. So I was going to write some other essays, but instead I wrote this massive searching personal essay slash exploratory argument about um, separating the artist from the art about my own relationship with the work of artists, this men who've done crappy things, um, who've committed crimes, who are terrible people, whose art has been hugely influential on me. And so, I mean, I can't summarize it. Like, that's yeah, no. why the essay is yeah, so read the long. Essay. It's a <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of, it, it was actually a difficult essay to write, but I'm happy that I wrote it in the end. Like, cause it was, it was weird. I only felt that way when I was doing the audiobook. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause I, then when I read it out loud, I was like, this does this, I mean, all you can do is be honest about how you feel about things. And it, it, it involves a lot of internal contradictions, but that's the problem. Yeah, it felt like a very it complete panels though, yeah. because it is this thing where it's like, well, which section do you want to talk about? Yeah. So, no, it felt like a very complete list of questions. Mm. Yeah. And it was interesting. It was interesting. Cause I don't, I, I mean, sometimes I think people think my criticism is more personal than it is because um, it's not, I don't write memoir or confession. And this is the one essay where I actually did sort of think back to being a teenager and being in college and thinking, what are my values and what are my ideas about art and where did they come from? So in that way, it was, it was kind of a, a valuable experience that is a therapy session I'm now imposing on everyone. <laughs> so enjoy. Um, and on that, <laughs> sorry, to, yeah, on that dark yeah, note. On that dark note, let's start with you, sir. Thank you. Looking forward. And speak to reading, into the microphone. Yes, that. looking forward to reading your book. Um, obviously, there's so many ways to watch TV now on your phone, on yeah. your desktop, on your laptop, on a 72 inch screen. I'm wondering how, like, what do you have a certain place you do when you are reviewing shows? Um, where you watch them, or is it where it's most convenient? I, I watch all those ways. I mean, mm -hmm. I actually have to say, I. I have, I have a flat screen TV and sometimes when there's stuff that's particularly visually intense, I try to watch it there because that right. seems to serve it best. But I watch on my computer a lot. And part of this is a pragmatic thing for TV critics. They, they've sent us screeners all different ways over the years. Like I used to get VCR tapes and then it was DVDs, right. then it was thumb drives. Now it's screeners that stream. And so you go to a streaming site. And so for me, I often do watch on my on my um, desktop or on my laptop. Um, but then I also sometimes watch on my phone, you know? Um, in fact, I was watching The Terror on my phone. <laughs> I have a whole section in my phone that's all these apps. I mean, it just, honestly, it changes every six months. But I also feel like I, it's not, I mean, maybe this is an excuse, but I feel like I want to watch TV the way that people watch TV. And often this is how people are watching television. So um, it varies. Right. I did watch all of uh, Vanderpump Rules on my phone while walking around, which is in the essay on it, because I literally was like in line doing errands and just with earphones on watching it, which seemed appropriate. 
Hi, what's up with Joss Whedon? Is he ever going to come back to TV? Is there ever going to be a Buffy movie? I, I think he's making a show for HBO, which is, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think it has something to do with um, Victorian. I don't, I don't want to falsely state it. Somebody somebody Google it quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd heard about him making it. I don't know when it's supposed to come out, but I thought that was because when I was working my book, part of what I was writing about was the contrast between uh, what was Buffy originally on? It was on the w, w, the WB. So part of what I was writing about was the difference between how people regarded something like the WB and some of you regarded HBO. And so the irony that Joss Whedon is now making a show for HBO struck me. But I, I, I don't know exactly what it is. Um, it's called The it Nevers. Called? It's about a group of Victorian women with unusual abilities. <laughs> Perfect. So that's so that's the answer. No, <laughs> thank you. Hi, um, I was just wondering um, for both of you: um, Do either of you have uh, hills you'll die on in regards to television shows, and if so, what are they? What you mean? What do like, you mean? Like a really like embedded petty opinion. Like for me, I will fight with people forever about the fact that I think the lost ending made sense and was good. Ooh. So that's my whole die on and we'll fight oh my with God. people it's about it. It's literally going to be like a duel. Yeah. Like we're going to like, we're going to like lock horns. Like it's going to be this thing. Um, no, I, I literally, there's a whole essay in the book yeah. about me not liking the lost finale. And so, yeah, no, there, there, there are these things. I mean, look, do I have petty opinions that I want to impose on people about television? Yeah, <laughs> but but hills hills that all I mean I sometimes do have like weird opinions that people don't agree on like um, I'm trying to think I do have a, a I, I I sometimes like um, certain love interests that other people don't seem to like <laughs> like um, like like Riley on Buffy I actually think he was yeah I'm I'm actually like part of, oh my god there's some people in the audience who feel this way yeah like where I'm like where I'm like he made sense to me and actually and very similar Aiden on uh, Sex and City not that I thought she should have stayed with him but that I thought that the that I understood their relationship and it made sense and I could see his side of things um, so some that's a very picky and thing. I'm sure there are much weirder opinions that I have and surely I can pick something out that's not just out of a um, you know like although I'm Ben on on Felicity is mm. is clearly the right choice there because he believed her during the time traveling plot. <laughs> I felt this I felt this a niche opinion that would go over with a tiny set of people. Anyway. I feel like Mine is probably that I like both the original series and Deep Space Nine better than Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> and that's just because I feel like Next Generation is a workplace where everyone gets along really well. And that's the conflict. It's like, I want to take a workplace improvement course. No, you don't. Whereas the original is so just like strange and idiot and all over the place. And uh, I guess, I don't know how hot that take is. I feel like Ted Cruz shares it and therefore it's kind of hot. Um, yeah. <laughs> But that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. No, he's like as a strange bond. Like Kirk we all disagree the way. on everything except this one thing. But then it's yeah, no. Yeah, but it's key. I'm yeah. I, I I if I think of something later. Supermarket I'll say Sweep it. is objectively a great show. Wait, uh, which one? Supermarket Sweep. Oh, I love super. I love that guy's sweater. Uh, yeah, he's always got sweaters, and he's helping people get groceries. Uh, Thank you. Thanks. Hi, um, my name is Rebecca, and um, I think in a lot of um, pop culture, just generally, especially in medical journals, like w uh, watching TV is seen as an unhealthy or like solitary activity. But um, for me, watching TV has always been about talking about it afterwards with like a group of friends. We watched like Sex and the City, and then Broad City, and then Grace and Frankie, etc. So um, it's always been about my being friends with this group of girls basically and I'm wondering for someone like you especially because you watch so much tv whether watching tv is a solitary or a group activity and has it changed over the years well, it's funny because I have a long history of it being a social activity and I always thought that tv did get an odd rap for me because historically the solitariness of it was definitely part of the insult like the whole idea was well, of course, TV used to just be a piece of furniture in your living room that you'd go home. And then I, I, I this is in the opening chapter, but there was this thing about you'd eat a TV dinner and watch it by yourself. The lonely citizen who has no, yeah. you know, and so it was it was supposed to be this sort of humiliating um, compensation for your loneliness and something that would isolate you from the world. But, yeah, my whole life <laughs> has been I mean, I used to have 
uh, when I was in graduate school in in New York, I used to go out to Brooklyn and get together with friends to watch certain shows before the internet. Like we would just have, we were watching Seinfeld together and things like that. So I, I and then actually when I was doing activism in Atlanta, I was doing, uh, it's a long story, but I was, I was doing, uh, I was, I, I had an organization called Straight But Not Narrow that was like a straight allies organization. And I was in Queer Nation and our meeting was to watch Melrose Place <laughs> at the time because I had like the one gay character on TV. So that was it was like not only a social activity, but kind of a weird political activity to root for this extremely minor gay character, which is a very pathetic part of the 90s. Um, but, um, but, but the thing is, online watching is a certain kind of uh, social activity as well. I mean, it certainly has improved um, uh, award shows. <laughs> so no, nobody, but yeah, I, I, I've never really understood that because I, I can think of a million examples. And Buffy actually is something that I watched every week with two friends. Um, and we would get together all the time for this. But I also think, you know, what's changed it is actually that TV is no longer an appointment thing. People watch shows at different times. And that is the one thing that I do feel some nostalgia for because, you know, like the new season of Orange is the New Black is about to come out but everyone's going to watch it at a different time. So people, when do people talk about it or watch it together? I don't really know. It's a rambly answer to that, but I suddenly was filled with memories of watching TV with people. So I thought I'd share them. How about, hi, um, I have sort of more of a practical question. Um, I also write and I feel kind of bombarded by things I need to read, things I need to write, things I need to watch. And there are times when I feel like I get so much more, um, like, emotional soul, like, sustenance from watching TV and watching shows than I do from, like, the latest novel. No offense, politics and prose. I come here all the time. I really love you. <laughs> surrounded by novels. <laughs> um, but I'm just wondering, as someone where it's really your job to balance these things, like, how do you balance them? And then how do you keep from feeling like watching TV is is like work and like a drudgery kind of like? Well, there are two things. One of them is for whatever reason, I don't actually feel like watching TV is a drudgery. Just watching a bad show is boring and annoying. And sometimes I get angry because it's taking time from a better show. and Or I feel compelled to finish it. And then I feel, I, I worry that I'm more irritated that it was bad than I would be because there's so much more to watch. But I watch TV for relaxation at times as well. Like I, there are shows that I keep up with just because I like the show and I know I'm not going to watch about it. I'm not going to write about it. And I, you know, there are shows that I watch with my kids that's, like a lovely, you know, we watch, we watched all of like the good place and we watched Jane the Virgin and things like that. So I don't feel like that's a, um, a grind, but I love reading and I love books and it is eternally frustrating to me that I don't have enough time to do all of both. Like I always think of that Nicholson Baker book, the, where the Fermata, where you could freeze time. And I'm like, I just wish that I could freeze time. So I was going to ask more. if you time travel. Yeah. No, that's the thing. And I, at a certain point that the peak TV thing was useful to me because I was like, I can't keep up ever, with everything. Like, I mean, just realistically, like I have to pick and choose. So I just live with the fact that there are things that I haven't been watching, but I was just tweeting about this this week, but you know, the new Veronica Mars came out and one of the weird gaps in my TV knowledge is that I'd watched some episodes of Veronica Mars, but I had never actually watched the whole show. And I had not really watched the first season, which is I'm halfway through it and is clearly one of the most amazing first seasons of a show. Like it really is spectacularly good. Um, and, but then I'm like, why am I watching this? I do have work to do, but it's a great show. So, I mean, I don't have a solution, but, um, that, that's my answer. I but I didn't but, think you did. It, no, except, except that I, I don't know. I do feel like I get a different thing out of reading than I do out of watching things. And so I try to make sure, you know, I also feel like whatever I'm doing, like there's something about it that ends up being valuable in my work, including reading stuff that has nothing to do with TV. Like I, I as much as I try to separate TV from comparisons to books and movies, I actually try to watch book, watch movies and read books. So I understand how it fits into the larger culture. Like everything's in communication with everything else. So that's just a pragmatic answer. No, cause I feel like 
once I was talking to someone who I didn't realize subscribed to the view that you should watch all of TV at like two times faster so that you could get through it more quickly. Oh, that's I was amazing. worried you were going to say something like that. That would be like, great. What if that was my advice and I was completely sincere about it and I just told everyone that there was this mode? Because I, I have yeah. once in a while when I've, I, I can't figure out how to do it on my current TV setup, but um, where I've done that two times with <clears throat> captions just to try to figure out what the plot of something was. But what a horrible way to, I mean, it's like speed reading or something where you're just supposed to pick up whatever words you can see just by riffling through. No, somebody seems... wrote this piece for the Post about like how it was the best way to absorb certain television shows, and like, which you shows? may be right. I think it was Big Bang Theory, which is <laughs> it was. I, I hate to be like, I can the, see the argument. No, <laughs> no, actually, because you just go joke. Fun. No, I think it, it might have been Modern Family actually, and they're like, I just got to consume all of the content. There's too much content out there, and I'm going to get through it as yeah, fast just as don't I can. Watch Modern Family under those circumstances. I don't understand that. Like, watch a slow, beautiful show that requires attention rather than frantically trying to watch every CBS sitcom. That's crazy. <laughs> Although, as somebody who like I wasn't allowed to watch TV during the week, so I would just like find a transcript of Will and Grace online and like read that. Um, I have so, such respect. You 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 have watched TV in more strange, strange routes. <laughs> but yes. Thank sorry. you. Oh, hi. Um, a big part of watching TV. By the way, I like your Daria t-shirt. Oh, thank you. Um, a big part of watching TV for me is um, how much rewatching is a part of it. That's, I, I mean, you're talking about the VCR era, but um, like I used to watch, it would have like, I'd have the whole season or my friend would have a season and I would borrow it. And now with like Netflix and Hulu, like there's a new season of something. I'm going to like rewatch all of this. Or like when I was in college and something new would happen, like I'd watch an episode of Buffy that corresponded. Yeah, yeah there or, are shows that people revisit. Yeah, yeah. or like I watched The Good Wife when I want to get psyched about being an adult, which yeah. is like, fine. <laughs> That's the show? <laughs> she, I love The Good Wife, but what a dark view. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. But um, so I was wondering how... And, like, everyone I know rewatches shows for, like, comfort. I know some people who will, like, go through all the seasons of the show and then, like, start again. Like, But, you know, here's the thing. People were not able to watch these old shows right. until very recently. Like, yeah. I feel like every time there's a technological change, people's memories get wiped. Because it was like, I was like, just five years ago, all... 24 year olds weren't suddenly catching up on ER like or whatever like, like there, there's there, I, and I used to gripe all the time like a weird old fogey where I'm like people don't know TV history they don't know shows from the 70s they don't know you know like they don't know the context and suddenly I was like be careful what you wish for because it's like the archives opened and suddenly yeah. people have access to every old show which I think is fantastic but it does make it confusing because it's like but I mean that seems I mean I do the same thing I mean there are shows that I just revisit for comfort yeah. because I, I like there are episodes of 30 Rock or Buffy that, you know, I watch for fun. Are you saying it's a problem? Because No, no, no. I like, I really depend on it yeah. myself. But I, yeah, I was just wondering what you thought, like what impact it's had on your experience as a television viewer and the medium. Well, I think it's, I mean, to me, it's good because I actually feel like a lot of people know a lot more about older television than they, than they used to, even, even very recently. Like, young people who weren't familiar with some older shows are now familiar with them. So if I want to write something that draws a direct comparison between certain kinds of workplace sitcoms or something, I, I feel like I have a broader range of not having to explain everything. Um, the one odd downside to me, and I've had arguments about this, is that sometimes, I mean, it's like my least favorite kind of criticism where somebody picks an old show and just does a blog post saying, 10 offensive things about, uh, yeah. and I, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't offensive things about old TV shows. There are, but the thing is, I, I prefer when people talk about them in the historical context that they existed. And sometimes that context just gets stripped out because if you're suddenly randomly watching a show from 1981 and you don't know what the references are or where it was placed in TV. I don't know. That that bums me out, but that's just a problem for me with online criticism in general. But that's literally the one downside. I especially like when people watch old 70s shows because I feel like it now feels like a very um, shocking period in TV. Like just the the tone, the language, the force, the, the kinds of... The, the kinds of humor people use, the way they talked about politics are really different. And I think it's a good tonic for people to understand that different aesthetics have been perceived in different ways at different times. And I was pretty excited when they did that weird, crazy live Norman Lear thing a couple of weeks ago. Did anyone see this? I didn't know this was on and I felt like I was having a 
like a stroke or something. Like I, like people were talking on Twitter, and I was like, "What's going on?" And I turned on, uh, I don't even know what network it was because it was the wrong network for where the Lear shows were, but th- they were doing a live presentation of an episode of All in the Family and an episode of The Jeffersons uh-huh. with other actors playing the characters. <laughs> some of them very well. Some of them, like Woody Allen as as a uh, as Archie Bunker, not that successfully. But it was. Re- but what was so interesting was Woody Harrelson. Did I say who did I say? You said Woody Allen. Oh, Woody. I did. <laughs> oh my God! It's like deep. a hangover from my like confessions, like successful. from my mead. No, that would be that would be deeply quite, unsuccessful. Well, it would be a throwback to the. 70s and <laughs> quite a, oh my god the cross casting as as Archie Bunker of all people <laughs> sorry guys um, no Woody Harrelson who is uh, not perhaps as ill suited as Woody Allen to that particular <laughs> role but still not to me a successful experiment um, but uh, but it was but what was fascinating was just suddenly seeing a, a <laughs> it was so many things it was like Live TV, which is unusual as it is, um, the the treatment of these of these scripts from the seventies as as like play scripts that other people could play the roles of, and these modern actors in them, and then the, just the context of the political conversation was so great. So I, a lot of people were making fun of it, but I was like, do more surreal experiments like this <laughs> because I was like, as long as everybody's experiencing old TV, I think it creates a very interesting conversation to say, you know, like how did this joke play at the time? Like what's the meaning of it? Thank you. I feel like this line's been going longer. Yeah, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hi. Oh, there's a long answer oh, involving sorry. a weird right. yeah. um, we Freudian slip of the tongue. We love long answers. We yeah, all read no, the New Yorker. Good. That's why we're here. So <laughs> um, I assume I in the long answer, I was thinking of like three different questions that I was going to ask. Give and you a I super actually, short answer yes. no matter what you ask. Awesome. Great. <laughs> love it. Um, actually, on a new question that I thought of like right now. And I was reading a Twitter thread, which I almost said an article. And I do this thing where when I say I read an article nine times out of ten, it's a Twitter thread. But um, <laughs> Alexander and I both very George. strongly related. Yeah, right? to yeah. And it was um, from Dana Schwartz where she was talking about this realm. Like she didn't use the word earnest. I don't remember what it was, but like earnest comedy and like how so many successful shows in the past, like four to five years have really latched on to that idea of like community and refusing the concept of the other, which is so much of humor historically. And like her example, her first example is Bob's Burgers where like everybody in the town is so weird and the humor doesn't come from making fun of them. It comes from like just situational comedy instead of being like the turkey guy was weird, like all that kind of stuff. And I took a class in college on American humor and from spanning from the First play ever written in America was apparently a comedy. This was eight years ago, so I don't remember much about it. I didn't that find it funny. That's pretty for the first play in America. Right, right? <laughs> no, so, ha, ha, ha. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No. But, um, and I don't remember it, but it spanned all the way from that first play that was written in, like, 1658 or something like that to then contemporary humor, which they brought up... Um, something that came out in 2010. I don't remember what it was, but so much of the focus in that class ended up focusing around, like late 90s early 2000s like very crude humor and one of the arguments made in the class was like south park is like they were saying like south park is comedic genius like we say it's crude correct so they say it's crude we say all this kind of stuff it is a very smart show i just i i wish that i had the ability to raise an eyebrow it would be so useful correct i there were many eyebrows raised in the class so we all did it for you in spring 2012 um And yeah, it was this whole thing where it's like, this is peak comedy because the whole class focused on like this fulcrum of like Freud's theory of comedy, which is that you have to have an other for a joke to be successful. And I was thinking about that and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That's the only thing Freud said that like ever makes sense like eight years ago. And now that I'm thinking about how much TV out there that is good and like funny, but also wholesome and how if we're going to be able to look back on a show like South Park and be like, yeah, this is smart, but is it also funny? And if comedy is generally trending that way. So, I mean, the question is about the nature of comedy and whether it has to be um, kind of cruel, sardonic, abrasive yeah. and directed at humiliation to certain sort to of. a certain extent or whether it can also be uh warm and homey and all those things. The truth is I like both kinds. I like a lot of cruel humor. I don't think that that's necessarily, I don't think it's one of these things where, um, 
humor has to be good for people in order to be um, funny and acceptable. I think that there's stuff that does break taboos that is pretty powerful if it's well done. That The problem with South Park to me is a really deep problem with that show. And I'd love to revisit it. The only time I've really written about South Park is in a essay that I have in the book that in the magazine was called tragedy plus time, but on the website was good because they have different headlines was called how jokes elected the president and, um, it, it, or how jokes elected Trump. Um, and it's about Trump as a stand up comic and it's about the nature of comedy and jokes online as part of that election. But in it, I did this analysis of this, that season of South Park, which is so fascinating to me because in a lot of ways, that show was the one show that actually captured a lot of what was going on because it was about the manosphere and trolling and all that stuff. Like those guys who made the show really understood what was happening, but there's such limits to their understanding because they're such nihilistic libertarians or whatever, like the, the, the coldness of their view, but also their complete incapacity to imagine women as funny. Like, and, and it was a center. I mean, you have to watch the season to understand what I'm talking about, but a lot of it was about <laughs> crazy things, ghostbusters, the idea of female comics and all the stuff. But, they, they're just limits to their imagination that make them, to me, unable to penetrate this. And uh, it's part of what I write about in this essay, but this problem of the naughty, dirty bad boy and the chiding mommy figure and how impossible it is to avoid these archetypes, if you're, especially if you're a woman trying to get into a powerful position. Um, and I think that South Park is a really interesting show. It's an interesting text and it's not dumb. It's a smart show, but it is like soaked through with this toxic problem that seems really connected to me to all this. But that's not a dismissal of hostile humor. That's that said, you know, the shows I watch with my kids are all these humane shows. It's like Parks and Recreation, you know, The Good Place are all shows that are really seeking to be funny while also being compassionate, humane, philosophical. I mean, I think they're both good ways to make TV. But I, 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 I but yeah, I mean, whoever was teaching the class seemed very devoted to the idea that that what is funny is shocking people and being edgy including hurting people and that doesn't matter and in fact might make what's funny superior you know and i agree with you i reject that as an idea yeah, it's like the old joke like tragedy is when i have a hangnail and comedy is when you fall down a manhole and die yeah um, <laughs> but no i think it's also just to piggyback yeah. on that before we only have time for two questions so i will speak very rapidly uh like louis gohmert earlier today um and <laughs> Which is that people often do terrible things in the name of satire, and they're like, oh, I said it, I was joking. It's okay, I was joking. I think we all know people who do this. (laughs) Yeah, but like throughout the internet, and so there's this whole, like like satire has become this hideous sort of parachute under which all kinds of things are covered, and it's weird to be like, is this actually a joke, or are you just saying you're joking so you can say the thing? And anyway, there's theses to be written on that. But thank you for the, so we have two more. Perfect. Uh, can you each tell us what episode of TV you've watched in its entirety the most number of times and why? Let me think. I mean, it might be Once More with Feeling, the Buffy musical. Yeah. Like, that might have been the one, because I used to... Did you sing along? <laughs> Do you want me to? Rethink your question. No, um, maybe also Rosemary's Baby. There's this episode of uh, 30 Rock that I'm kind of obsessed with that, that it's really... I just feel is this kind of key to all mythologies when it comes because it's a sh- I'm interested in TV shows about TV and that actually specifically has to do with this question of like what kind of humor is truly edgy and it, it's I mean I just love it so but there's probably several other ones too how about you oh uh, I think can I just say like all of the Nightman episodes of like oh, yes. Always Sunny like that Speaking of shows that are a musical, mixture yeah. of humane and cruel, I mean, that's why that show is so brilliant, is that in some ways it seems cruel. It actually has this incredible Yeah, there's like a liquid center of, eth- of yeah. like earnestness that yeah. I feel like I've watched that a bunch of times. Otherwise, probably it'll be like supermarket sweep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's sad, so I'm going to say something cooler sounding. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I really enjoyed your book. And one of the essays that I was most surprised by was your profile of Ryan Murphy, who, to be honest with you, has kind of never been for me. He's like a lot. (laughs) And the thing that I've probably enjoyed of his most seems to be the thing he had the least to do with, which was the O.J. Simpson um, American crime story. Anyway, but in reading that profile, you really got a sense of why he 
is who he is and what he does and the community that he's created around his shows, which I found really fascinating. And I wondered if you could reflect on that as well as other showrunners as a kind of entity now that seems to exist that maybe didn't exist 20 years ago. It's true. I mean, that... um that was a uh, that was such a great opportunity to write a profile. The 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 um, the book contains you know reviews, essays, and it has three profiles that I wrote for the New Yorker of um, of Genji Cohan, um, uh, Kenya Barris, and Ryan Murphy, um, and. And the Ryan one is is actually the biggest of them, which suits Ryan, who's a huge figure and to me very important in TV in ways that are often misunderstood and a divisive character and a complicated guy. But the greatest thing was he is this huge figure who's created all of this. I mean, he's created everything from uh, Nip Tuck to Glee to the American crime stories, the American horror stories and all these kinds of things. They're not to everybody's tastes. I love a lot of his programs and even the ones that I don't necessarily love. I like the way that he pushes the nature of what TV can do. The greatest thing about that piece is I got to write it over a year, which is pretty rare for magazine journalism. And the reason this happened is that I went down to Miami to the set of Versace and then I talked to him about the three million projects he was working on. And um, I decided I wanted to write about Pose, which didn't go up until the fall. So I literally got to cover him from the time he was making the Versace thing to the time that Netflix signed a deal with him. So I don't know, like I, I, this isn't really an answer to the question, but it is just an answer to my satisfaction with that profile is I feel like when you write about somebody who has that, you know, when you said he's a lot like that, this is like this great double edged thing He's like, he's a lot, but also he's a lot like he, it's about like his stuff is not about precision and carefulness and smallness and perfection. It is about grandeur. And I had this argument with him that's at the beginning of it. They sort of changed his mind about this, but um, I had called some of his stuff camp and he didn't like the word camp. And he said he preferred the term, I think he said maximalist or like, what do you say? Baroque, Baroque. Um, he said he preferred the term Baroque. And I understood this because he had an argument for why camp is a homophobic thing to say about a gay creator. Um, but I will say in my favor <laughs> that by the time the Met Ball was doing this thing, Ryan was there dressed as uh, Liberace, right? Like, so he, and he'd come around. He was like, so I think he, he, he like that whole thing where, you know, somebody contains uh, multiple contradictions, like he embodies that. So. Well, cool. Thank you everyone for coming. And thank be sure, you. Be sure to get yourself a copy of I Like to Watch. And thank you so much to Alexandra, which is a delight. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.